G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. But here's the question I want to start with. Do you love me? Do you love me? Um, that is the question that Dr. Ross Campbell uh, he reckons we're obsessed with Dr. Ross Campbell, uh, and he writes this that I'm about to read to you in, the, in his marvellous little book on parenting, How to Really Love Your Child. He says this, Almost every study I know indicates that every child wants to know of his parents, do you love me? A child asks this emotional question mostly in his behaviour, seldom verbally, The answer to this question is absolutely the most important thing in any child's life. Do you love me? If we love a child unconditionally, he feels the answer to the question is yes. If we love him conditionally, you know, conditionally as in if you do your homework, if you're a good boy, if you behave yourself, if you... If we, if we love him conditionally, he's unsure. And again, prone to anxiety, the answer we give a child to this all-important question, do you love me, pretty well determines his basic attitude toward life. It's crucial, writes Ross Campbell. Uh, and then he tells this story, and I know we're not, we're not all parents here, and I know that um, as parents, the parents who are here, we carry regrets about how well we've done in this area over the course of our lives and we could have done better and wish we... And all. I think we can all relate to what he's talking about here. What does a child do then to win love? A child communicates primarily with his behaviour. He continually asks the question, do you love me? Here's an example. When our daughter, Carrie, was 16, she went to summer camp, right? Obviously an American... Uh, she went to summer camp, Carrie. Our nine-year-old, David, was then the oldest child at home and he liked it. He acted more maturely and sought more responsibility. David liked being the oldest. It was great. The problem was that eventually Carrie had to come home. Well, on the day she returned, David's behaviour regressed. He suddenly became whiny discontented, pouty, somewhat angry, moody and withdrawn. What happened? Why the sudden drastic change in David? What should I do as a parent? Punish David for his poor behaviour? Send Carrie back to camp? Tell David his five-year-old brother Dale acts better than he? What would you do? Of course, Carrie's coming and again becoming the oldest kid was hard on David. That's difficult for a young boy to handle. His behaviour was the pleading question, do you love me? Do you love me now that Carrie's home and I'm not the oldest anymore? How does your love for me compare to your love for Carrie? Is she more important? Can she take away your love from me? And perhaps you might say, well, um, that, that's one angle on it, <laughs> but there's, there's more to parenting, and in, indeed there is. You know, doesn't David, the, the, this middle child, doesn't he need to learn 
dot, 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 and you can fill in the blank for yourself. Um, and of course those things are true, but I think there's a lot to this thought, isn't there? How much of our behaviour, not just as children anymore, but how much of our behaviour even as adults is driven by a thirst for an answer to this question, do you love me? You know, I will be a, a servant-hearted person, spouse to my spouse because, well, not just because I want to imitate Jesus and, and live as he's told me to, but partly because I want her to love me and because I want to be assured of her love for me. Do you see? I think we're complex beings when it comes to our motivations for things. You know, I'll take one for the team. It might be in the work situation or it might be uh, in sport. I'll take one for the team to, to guarantee myself, to shore up the admiration that I enjoy or the gratitude or affection from my workmates or my boss or my coach or my teammates. Um, and sometimes we're a bit more dysfunctional about it, aren't we? You know, I'll act up with my parents or my teachers in, in this weird self-defeating kind of a way because, well, I think deep down they love my sisters more than they love me. Or because that kid, that kid over there, well, he just he gets all the attention of the teachers. I, in a way, I'm acting up because I want to be noticed. But let's go one step further back, if we could, friends, and just before we pray, and, and I am going to get to Luke's Gospel, don't worry. Let's go one step further back, because if Campbell, Ross Campbell, has put his finger on something important here, and I think he has, you know, that much of our anxiety in life and our, our flapping around in life, our, our trouble in relationships and our stress stems from uncertainty around this question, do you love me? Then what about God in our lives? The, the health issue that crops up um, quite out of the blue, perhaps, and it, it could be about your mortality or it could be some other area of your life that's very precious to you and special to you, um, uh, or indeed it could be that for your spouse, but it's how you have to face it. But It really comes home to you, this, this health issue, it really brings home to you your mortality, perhaps, or, or in a very new way or for the very first time. Does God love me? been saying it for years, but does God love me? Well, the family um, perhaps tells you, and, and look, maybe they say it rudely and bluntly, and they could have said it a whole lot better, but they tell you what you already know, that you are struggling to cope on your own now. Is God really by my side in all of this and in whatever's going to come next? Or with the stuff that I got up to over summer, or that recurrent sin in my life, and I struggle against it and I fight against it, but am I really winning? Are you really winning? Does God have for me, for me, for you, an unconditional love, an unimpeachable forgiveness, a warmth toward you that will never go away no matter what? Do you love me, dear son? Well, friends, God has some words for us this morning in Luke chapter 3. Yes, amidst all of those tricky to pronounce names. And may these words be like the fresh morning dew for our souls. I think there's real refreshment in these words for us this morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, may they be a beautiful, uh, a reawakening uh, for us as we continue our series through Luke's Gospel, uh, thinking about following Jesus. So let's pray together. Please pray with me.
Our Father God in heaven, we confess before you, as we come to your word now, that we are less mature, that we are less together, that we are just less wonderful people, all things considered, than we wish we were. God, we live in a world that is broken in so many ways and we sense that, uh, that fracture deep within ourselves and we even uh, despise some of the petty, silly things that trouble our hearts or unsettle us or that we obsess over or that we pin our hopes to at times. Father, would you please refresh us now with your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit, bring it to bear on our souls and our hearts now. As you've promised, O God, may your spirit awaken us to the very character and mind and heart of our God in your word. And Father, may we be the richer and the more complete and the more holy for your work in us this very morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 3. Could you read along with me? That's the passage to have open uh, on your lap if you um, uh, have a Bible on your lap. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Um, Let me tell you exactly where I'm going with this sermon this morning. It's those words right there. You are my son, my, my child, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. I mean to convince you. I mean to remind you. I mean to show you that those aren't just a display of God's heart toward Jesus for our information or our education or nice to know, good for him. No, they are rather, they are a declaration of God's heart towards us, all of us who are in Christ for our edification, that is to build us up, to assure us, remind us, to comfort you, to strengthen you in your walk with him, um, to, uh, to strength, to comfort you as you are believers in him or perhaps to call you to believe in him for the very first time and to welcome you into something that is uh, truly special and there for you. Not a display for our education, but a declaration for our edification. I'm saying this, Christian, that you can, you should, you must take those words as words that God says over you. You are my son, my daughter, my child, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Are you in a place in your life where you're able to take those? You know that um, so firmly within yourself. A love from God, do you see, I think that speaks to us in our fears, that can settle us when we feel very much at sea. A pleasure, the pleasure of God with us that can't be lost and can't be taken away and can't be because it's firmly grounded in Jesus. He's already forgiven you for everything that you've ever done. Is that the kind of love that could make a difference to how you face this week? Whatever comes, a rock-solid assurance. He knows me, he's pleased with me, he loves me. Uh, Well, today's sermon, I hope, um, is as simple as that and as simple as it is assuring. So let's build the picture in three pieces, three pieces 
And firstly, the first is this, that Jesus stands with us in this text. What is Luke trying to convey uh, to us, his readers, as we look through this? Firstly, it's that Jesus stands with us. It's a crucial point that Luke wants to make in the text here for us as as followers um, of Jesus today and indeed for the followers uh, of uh, those who, who stood in the footsteps of John the Baptist there from last week, people who long for and wish for and desire to see God do something in the world, something come on God, do you remember from last week? And finally, they have this, they have Jesus and just notice the way Jesus uh, in some ways was just part of the crowd. He stood among them. He stood with us there in Luke chapter 3. It pleased the loving God of the universe to be a face in the crowd. Luke chapter 3 verse 21. When all, when all the people were being baptised, all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Um, I wonder how many of us saw, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago now, saw the rocket launch, you know, the space rocket launch, the Falcon Heavy um, SpaceX. A few of us saw that, either the news or maybe some of us watched it live um, or whatever. So um, uh, in case you're not aware, so Elon Musk, that's the bloke behind it, the eccentric billionaire isn't he an odd man a delightful odd man but gosh he's strange elon musk um i think of him like as the the willy wonka of the stars kind of thing um because he's the guy who he created the tesla car and the spacex space program um and the massive mega battery farms and he wants to put some of us on Mars and seems to think that he can do it sooner than anyone thinks it's possible, Elon Musk. Um, And I think Musk sees himself as something of a crazy creative genius who might just be able to pull it off. You know, his his dreams are the kind of thing where he's sort of set himself the task of delivering mankind from our earthbound, um, uninspired existence or something. I don't know, anyway. So a week and a half ago, they launched this Falcon Heavy rocket Um, up into space. Massively powerful, like all those rockets on the launch pad, but this one's huge. Um, And it's hugely successful. Um, so if you, if you didn't, if you, I mean, if you, if you saw the, the launch, you'll, you'll know the scene. Uh, the, the, the rocket goes up, but then they send the boosters back down and the boosters come down. They land almost simultaneously on the, on the pads there. The third one, well, that's a different story. They managed to slam that into the ocean at 300 miles an hour and not such a great, but they didn't seem to even care. Why? Because the mission was successful. And the mission itself was completely ridiculous, if you're familiar. It was to put a used car into orbit around the sun. I'm not kidding. It was a Tesla, of course. It's got a dummy of a driver in there. And it's in this, um, I think it's got an eccentric orbit so that as it goes around the sun, it sort of passes at Earth's distance and at Mars's distance as it goes around. Truly ridiculous. Anyway, here's the one thing that really took me about the launch, and I wonder if you saw this, because it, uh, it was quite an inspiring little thing. Like every rocket launch, you've got the countdown. T minus two minutes, and down it goes. Ten, nine, eight, and down it goes. Three, two, one, and ignition and lift off and there's the flames and you're not quite sure if everything's going to plan or everything's coming apart for a few moments there. And they had cameras, do you see, on Elon Musk the whole time. They had a, they had a camera on his face 
uh, and what he was doing there, this eccentric billionaire. And at first, you see, he's in the control room. He's in the command room, surrounded by computers and readouts and very boring sort of voices uh, announcing what's happening to particular technical bits of who knows what. Anyway, surrounded by this data and engineers and so forth. But the moment the Falcon Heavy cleared the launch pad, do you see, it had barely got off the ground. And what did he do? He ran. He ran and he ran outside because he wanted to stand amongst the people and look up at this thing as it was flying up into the air. He wanted to stand shoulder to shoulder with men and women who were captivated by the beauty of this thing as it flies up into space and you can see him there with the boyish grin on his face and the shielding his eyes and hands on the back of his head. This billionaire trying to change the whole world, shoulder to shoulder. He craved no ivory tower. He wanted to be with ordinary people. And I look at, I know it's a, a, a poor comparison, but I look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were being baptised. Jesus was baptised too. Wouldn't the Lord Jesus, shouldn't the Lord Jesus stand alone? Shouldn't he have a, a private baptism? Shouldn't he be sealed off uh, away from all the sinners and away from all the people like us with issues in our lives and a mess in our lives and who knows what kind of a morning? Shouldn't the Lord Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, the one through whom, shouldn't the holy Lord Jesus have a private baptism separate from us? What does he want to be around ordinary people for. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. He craved no ivory tower, friends, but ordinary people. But he doesn't just stand with us and is pleased to do so. Secondly, he stands. Jesus stands for us as well. Um, he stands with us, but he also stands for us, secondly, and more quickly. Uh, let me just say, could, if you've got the passage in front of you there and, uh, on a, uh, um, a, you know, in an actual uh, Bible, or perhaps you're quick enough to do it on your phone, let me just say, um, a lot of ink has been spilled over the centuries and by incredibly smart people um, uh, and in many big, fat commentaries, all trying to figure out the best way to harmonise Luke's genealogy, you know, the list of names there, the family tree, with Matthew's genealogy, because Matthew also lists a genealogy for Jesus, uh, and he's got Matthew's got that there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He's got it at the start of his Gospel, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and, and on it goes, you see, down to um, Jesus. And Luke's got his here and he goes in the opposite direction, but uh, nevertheless, another family tree. Could I just make three comments on these two genealogies? Uh, and for some of us... Um, uh, these sort of things really matter. For others of us, we go, can we just get to the main point of it, please? But for some of us, these, these details matter. Three comments on these genealogies. Number one, if you're kind of hoping that they're the same, um, that they're actually identical, if you stare at them, you're going to be disappointed. They are different. It's just not that easy. So number one, they're not the same. But number two, I want to say, I don't believe they contradict one another either. Now, hmm... How does that work? Because um, you either get a guy's dad's name right or you get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, 
then you suddenly are chasing down the wrong branch of the tree. And you might get to the same point eventually, but you know what I mean? Like you either get the guy's dad's name right or you get it wrong. How can uh, they not be contradictory? How on earth can two family trees even work? Um, There are several ways that two family trees can even work and I think all of them contribute to the the clash, if I can put it that way, the apparent contradiction between Matthew and Luke. One way is that sometimes the fathers listed are the legal guardians rather than the birth fathers or or vice versa, depending on which book you're looking at. Um, And Jewish law sanctioned that much more than we do in our day. In fact, there were certain circumstances under which Jewish law required, commanded it um, uh, to be the case. And I think that's um, uh, the, the instance very early in Luke's Gospel. I think that's why it departs from Matthew's list Um, and causes them to branch off almost straight after Joseph's name. Um, So that's one way. Another way that two genealogies can both be right, although differ, uh, is that I think Matthew particularly wants to make sure that he lists all the actual kings of Judah, which is a priority for him, and you'll have to see that in Matthew's Gospel as to why that is, Um, even if they're not strictly the legal guardians or the parents, because for Matthew's Gospel, the line of kings is very important. Now, is that wrong? Well, it's not the way we do genealogies, is it? Um, it's not the way we would list them. And it's not strictly a family tree in that sense. But I don't think Matthew's trying to trick us. He's just doing a different thing. Uh, another way is this, and this is where it gets to some of the fine detail. In at least one of Luke's, um, one instance in Luke's gospel, he skips over a name of a man who, and, and I'm giving you a hunch as to why I think he does that, probably because of a curse that rested on the unnamed person in Luke's gospel whose name does appear in Matthew's gospel. So for what? You might call that a social motivation to avoid the shame of the, that person who had a curse um, on them, uh, whatever the case, if you um, have a passion to chase down those details all the more, I'm very happy to help you with that, but I won't belabor the point any further. I think we can say this, though. Even if there is reason to kind of fuss and obsess and, and stew over a few of the details to try and harmonise these two lists, hypothesise and wonder, I think we can say this pretty clearly from Luke's Gospel, can't we? Jesus came to stand for us. The genealogy shows us that much. And when we get a hold of that, that Jesus came to stand for us, we just start to get our hands, we start to get our fingers around those precious words from heaven spoken over Jesus as our very own. Take a look with me, would you please, at just the first couple of names in the list of names in Luke's Gospel and the last couple of names. I think they're the big point. Uh, that Luke wants to lead us to. Luke chapter 3, oh, let's take it from verse 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, and on it goes. Skip down to the end of the list, just trail your eyes to to there. Verse 37, say, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. 
the Son of God. The Son, so it was thought of Joseph, but truly the Son of Adam, the Son of God. And God says to this Son, there in the middle of history, surrounded by the hoi polloi, you are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And if you've ever found yourself wondering to yourself, what you know, what am I in the eyes of God? Little me down here. You know, what are we? If he's up there somewhere, what's he care about little old me or little old any of us for that matter? Well, doesn't Luke want us to know this? Number one, you think God's forgotten? Alex, would you mind just getting that door? Number one, you think God's forgotten? God hasn't forgotten his children. God made us. God remembers us. He knows every person in this list, not just as a weird Hebrew name, but as a person, as a generation of human beings, knew every one of them intimately, created and cared for by God. He fathered them into existence. You think you've been forgotten? But number two, he hasn't forgotten. He also hasn't become fed up with mankind because here comes one, you, Jesus, my son whom I love with you I'm well pleased and you and I of course brothers and sisters um, we have ancestors mums and dads and grandparents with a convoluted story with, with the, who were deeply flawed who sinned terribly just like we do who failed in terms of arousing the deep pleasure of God on account of their lives but if there is to be hope for us before the God of the universe, it is to be found right here. God said about Jesus, hello world, look at him, won't you? This son, I am pleased with him. Get with him, won't you? Side with him, come to him. Repent before him, gather around him, marvel at him. He, Jesus, you, Jesus, are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Lastly, So Jesus came to be with us. He came to stand for us. But crucially, Jesus came to save us. Uh, We read Psalm 2 before. um, And uh, what a beautiful psalm that is. We're we're obviously supposed to call it to mind. The the voice from heaven quotes from it. You are my son. Um, And and Psalm 2, it's one of those majestic passages in Scripture, isn't it? You know, here he is. I have my man for the day, my man for the job. Here comes the king of the world. Why would you fight against him? Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Because the Lord's got his king. So come to him and kiss him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. You know, it's, it's this um, powerful son, but it's also terrifying, I think. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. But you know what? I think the voice from heaven intends us to also to have Isaiah 42 in mind. And brothers and sisters, these are the words especially that I want us to take into our hearts this morning from Isaiah 42, not the picture of a terrifying king coming with an iron scepter in his hands only, but I think Isaiah reminds us for sure that one son of Adam came to save the whole family. He came for us that God might be pleased with all of us on his account, might love us with the same love and might take us as his children, firm and forever. So Isaiah 42, can we please just um, uh, quickly read some of those verses there? Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Here is my servant, prophesied Isaiah, looking toward Jesus. Here is my servant, whom I uphold 
my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he'll bring justice to the nations. He won't shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised wick, sorry, reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he'll bring forth justice. He won't falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God, the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I'll keep you and I'll make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And I guess, folks, the question that I have for you and uh, my read of the culture around me and the non-Christians in my life is this. Uh, is this the kind of tender God that they have in mind when they think of God in their lives? In Jesus, we have found a warm-hearted, generous God who would come to stand with us and for us and save us. I've found a God who has declared that he will stand by us and with us. He loves us. I meet here a tender-hearted God who holds his children in his very hands as he's done through all the generations and he'll never let us go for all who find their life in Christ. So do you love me, God? Well, as we are in Christ, we can take hold of these very words for ourselves. You should hold on to these very words for yourself. You are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So let's be the kind of believers in the lives of our friends who... Uh, We aren't just stiff upper lip, stoical, and nor are we scared stiff about what life holds. Let's be believers who think and who speak, who pray, who act, who care, who live like children loved and cherished. The very pleasure of our Father in heaven, whose Son came to save. Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven this morning, we are reminded of the power of words to hurt and to heal. God, grant please that we take these words of yours as the true joy and comfort of our souls this week and indeed every week. And Father, we long that others would come to Christ, would find their security in those words, would find their identity as a beloved son and daughter of yours, would find their eternity in these words of sonship, affection, assurance. Um, Grant too, please, God, that we point one another to your grace and your love. May we minister to each other in that way with those reliable and trustworthy, dependable words of life, the Lord Jesus himself for us and with us and to save us. And we ask him in Christ's name. Amen.